I do want to, uh, again, say my gratitude, and my wife is here this morning, and I'd like to just say my deepest gratitude and express that to uh, University Baptist Church, first of all, for being our home church. Uh, when my wife and I decided to come here a number of years ago, uh, we came here, first of all, because we had really sincerely prayed for the Lord to give us wisdom about where to go to church. That's a big decision. And we came here, and we had a sense that it was God's will for us to be here. But also, probably two or three key things. Number one, um, it allowed my wife and I to leave Greenville. And that was a great blessing. Uh, because we wanted to be in a local church, and we wanted to be local church people, uh, number one. Number two, uh, we had a great love for the people in this church. Many of them I've known for many years because we came here back when I was an evangelist, and then as I was working with Cross Impact Ministries, and I knew the outreach to Clemson University. And so we are just so thankful for the people and the commitment of the church to God's word. And then thirdly, uh, for the preaching of God's word. And I just want to publicly acknowledge my gratitude to our pastor for his faithful preaching of God's word. And it's like every single Sunday, I feel like, you know, this is not like eating at McDonald's. This is like eating at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in uh, every single Sunday. And so thank you, Pastor, for your faithfulness uh, in your family. And we love you deeply, and we're so thankful uh, that the Lord has allowed us to be here today and to le- actually leave out of here. You know, people often ask me, do you go to church? And I went, yes, I go. And uh, we're so thankful for our local church. We're looking this morning actually at a variety of verses. We'll begin today in the book of Genesis. And I'd like to address this morning a general or an overall theme that we find throughout the word of God. And it begins with the basic idea of this, that the, the, the notion or the belief or the concept that there is a God cannot be separated from the notion that God must be good. To believe in the existence of a God also at the same time believes that that God must be good. For example, consider the nature of the question, if God is good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Well, obviously, the question presupposes that if there is a God, then that God should not be evil. One of the primary reasons people today become atheists is because of the existence of evil in the world. For to an atheist, it seems inconsistent and irrational to believe in the existence of a God who is wholly good, knows everything, omniscient, can do anything, he is omnipotent, and yet he allows evil at the same time. And since there is the reality of evil in the world, then God cannot be a reality. So the belief that there is a God cannot be separated from the notion that God is good. So here is my intention this morning. It is not going to be philosophical in nature in my message. But it is simply to declare, to show, to explain, to announce 
that the Bible we call the Word of God declares to us that God is good. And I'd like us to see it in four ways. Number one, I want to begin at the very start of the Bible to show us that God declares his goodness. In the first chapter of the Bible, seven times it is declared that everything that God created was an act and a display of his goodness. We read in verse verse 4, and God saw the light that it was good. Now, would you agree with me this morning that light is good? Uh, How many of you have woke up in the middle of the night, got out of your bed to do whatever you need to do, and you almost broke your big toe, hitting the corner of your bed or a piece of furniture, and you turned the light on? Light is good. Notice what he says, if you will, please, in verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Have you ever flown in an airplane and you are glad to get on the ground? It is a good thing. My good friend, Dr. P.D. Cherian, is here. And P.D. and I were in classes back in the dark ages together in seminary. And he's been many years in the country of India there. And I've had the privilege to be uh, at his Bible college. But I remember the first time that I went to India. I flew around to the other side of the world. And it was a, to me, it was a precarious trip of the unknown. And when I landed on the ground in India, I was so delighted and I felt so safe until I got into a taxi. <laughs> and I began to discover that the fear only had just begun. God said that land was good. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. God made vegetables. God made fruit trees. Do we not consider that as good to eat an orange, to eat an apple? Even if we don't like it, we know it's good for us. The Bible says that it is good. Verse 18, and God ruled over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. Aren't you glad that we wake up in the morning and the sun is shining? We go to bed at night, it is dark, and we have the consistency and the pattern of life in the creation of the world. And the Bible tells us over and over that everything that God made was good. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and God saw that it was good. God made all the animals. How many of you have a dog? Wow, not many people. We have too many college students here. (laughs) Animals are good. We go to the zoo to look at the animals. We pay money to fly to Africa to look at the animals. And we are amazed at the creation of God. Do you like to fish? Do you not think it is good to eat fish, to see the birds in the air? And the Bible says everything that God made was good, but when he created man, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, 
And behold, it was very good. God created human beings. And what would our life be without human beings? None of us do well in loneliness, being alone. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but my wife and I have like one show that we watch. It's called Alone. Have you ever seen it? It's these really crazy people who want to make a lot of money, which most of them are not going to make money. And they take them up in the rotunda of, of Canada and they drop them off and they have to survive. And when I watch that, I ask one really important question, why? <laughs> it doesn't seem that good to me. And all of us understand the problem. And if you watch the show, what you discover is what they struggle with the most is not the ability to eat or to sleep or to have a covering or shelter or warmth. It's the fact that they are alone. And God created the world and God said that everything that he made was good. And one of the fundamental statements found in the entire Bible concerning God's nature, he declares himself as good. On Mount Sinai, he said to Moses in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness. So the scripture declares that the nature of God is that he is good. First Chronicles 16, 34. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And I want to say to all of us here, the great struggle that most of us will have with the existence of God is how do we deal with the bad things of life and, and to believe that God truly is good. Which leads me to my second point, and that is the Bible not only declares the goodness of God, but it defines for us the goodness of God. Now, we intuitively know when something is good. If you go out to eat supper on Saturday night at a restaurant at 6 o'clock, and you pull into the parking lot, and you're the only car there, and it says open you probably should have a question mark in your mind. It's not good. We know what a good day is, a good job. We say a good family. And in contrast, we we know when something is bad. We know this is not good. This is not the right thing. So involved in the idea of goodness is not only something that is intuitive, but to be more more specific. The idea of goodness is something that is a benefit to us, something that is beautiful to us, something that blesses us. So what is the goodness of God? Well, to be specific in in giving a definition, it is God's desire for our well-being and benefit. It's the idea of good. Good is outgoing. It is God's desire for our well-being and benefit, and it is also God's generosity in providing for that well-being. And when we consider the nature of God, we consider it in his perfection, in his totality, in all ways, in his thinking, in his action, and in his desires. When God thinks upon us, what does he want? He only wants what is good. 
That's not only the way he thinks about it, but it is the way he acts towards us. And it's the way that he feels towards us. And God is benevolent. He is generous to us. The Jewish people understood this. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 9, it says, And the Lord thy God will bless thee plenteous in every work of your hand, and the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good as he rejoiced over thy fathers. The goodness of God was clearly understood in his blessings. And God is so good (coughs) that God is indiscriminate in his goodness. He spreads it out to all of us, regardless of where we are in our relationship to him. Matthew 5, 45, Jesus said, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Did you get any rain this week at your house? Well, guess what? If you're a believer and next door to you is an unbeliever, I think they got the rain too. When you woke up this morning, did God's sun only shine on those that are going to church and their believers and everybody else who stayed in bed only got darkness? God's goodness is not discriminated to mankind. We call that his common grace, his his giving to all. It flows to all, even the advances that we have in society. Let's be honest, some of us are alive today because of the advances that we've experienced in technology and medicine and even education. We look at these things as blessings. We look at these things as benefits that God's goodness is indiscriminate. And let me also say this, that God is so good. He's even good when others are not good to us. Do you remember a fellow in the Bible named Joseph? Who grew up in a family as the youngest brother. That's a hard position to be in. And his brothers hated him. He was dad's favorite. So what did his own brothers do? They didn't pick on him. They didn't make fun of him. Only. But they sold him into slavery. Could you imagine? He's taken from his home, his family, his language, his culture, his world. And he's taken to a whole new world called Egypt, a land of idols. He's sold to the the commanding officer of the king's bodyguard. His name is Potiphar. And he goes to the house and there he is a slave and he serves He's humble, and he works his way up. And one day, Potiphar's wife, I'm assuming Joseph was a good-looking man, handsome and, and probably gentle and kind, and she was attracted to him, and she tempted him with adultery, and he said, no, I can't do that. How can I sin and do this great wickedness against my God? And so that night, she accused Joseph of trying to rape her, and Potiphar took him and threw him into prison forsaken by his family, falsely accused. I mean, come on. And here he is in prison. While he's in prison, he interprets the dream of the baker and the butler of the king. 
God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And in that interpretation, he said to one, I am sorry, God, tomorrow you're not going to make it. You're going to die. But to the other, to the butler, he said, you're going to survive. And when you get out, would you please tell the king that I've done nothing wrong? And would you please tell him I should not be in prison? And he gets out. And what does he do? He forgets about him. Have you ever been forgotten? This past week, my wife and I celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. You know how the day started? At about 10 o'clock in the morning, we both started laughing in separate locations, realizing we had completely forgot that today was our anniversary. So we made up for it last night, and we went out to eat a nice dinner. He was forgotten. He was falsely accused. He was forsaken by his family. Let's be honest. At some point, he must have questioned, God, are you good? Have you ever questioned that in the circumstances of your life? To say you haven't means you haven't lived life. And yet, as time went along and he saw in the providence of God, God unfolding his plan, he realized That some meant what happened for evil. That was their intention. But God meant it for good. And the book of Romans is emphatic with that idea. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them that are called according to his purpose. For there are no mistakes in the plan of a God who knows all and rules over all. God is always good. That leads to my third point. And that is the Bible not only declares and defines the goodness of God, but the Bible describes the goodness of God. And of course, we don't have time to unfold the full description of God's goodness, but we can make a few statements. Number one, God's goodness is desirable. It's, if I could say it this way, it's what draws us to him. What draws us to a rose? Is it not its beauty? What draws us to a barbecue? Is it not its smell? Whether it's something we see or something we smell, it touches our senses, our ears, our eyes. What draws us to us to it is that there's something that is satisfying about it. God's goodness is the satisfying aspect of his nature. Jeremiah 31, 14, my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. Let's be honest, in life, for the average person, it's the constant pursuit of being satisfied. And God's goodness satisfies those that believe in him. Psalm 103, verse 5, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like eagles. God's goodness is what satisfies us and it is what sustains us. It's what we want when things are bad. The psalmist said, I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's the goodness of God that helps us make it through the day. 
through the trial, through the difficulty. We cannot live without it. Let me also say that God's goodness is not only desirable, but it's communicable. When we talk about the nature of God, there are certain things that cannot be communicated to us. God cannot communicate to us his omniscience. We can't know everything. But God can communicate various aspects of his nature. We're made in his image, and so therefore we can be like God. And of course, one of his aspects of his communicating himself to us is his own goodness. The very nature of goodness is to be generous. God is not stingy. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Literally, it means to walk down. Whenever God shows up, it is always good. Stephen Sharnock said, God is more prone to communicate his goodness than is the sun to spread its rays and to give off its heat. On a cold day when you feel the warmth of the sun and you feel that goodness, that touch in the midst of the cold, that is simply an expression of God's goodness. God delights in being good. It's his pleasure. He enjoys giving more than receiving. Did not Jesus say it is more blessed to give than it is to receive? God is eager to bestow good things to those who ask him in prayer. Think of this verse. If you're evil and you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? I had a pastor friend of mine down in South Florida a number of years ago. He was one of those pastors that the moment you meet him, you never forget him. And he said to me one day, Steve, I want to buy for you the nicest pair of shoes you've ever owned. I said, okay. <laughs> his, his son, back in, this is uh, back in the day, owned a pair of, he, he worked for Florsheim Shoe Company. And those were the, the high-level shoes back in the day. He said, what kind of style do you want to wear? And I thought, well, I'm a, I'm a young preacher, so I should be conservative. So I bought a pair of wingtips. Have you ever heard of wingtips? Hardly anybody wears them anymore today. And so he gave me a pair of high-level floor-shine wingtips. I wore those shoes until I wore the soles off of them, and I resold them and wore them until I wore those soles off, and then I put them up in my Hall of Fame of shoes. <clears throat> and when he handed me the shoes, his intention was to teach me a lesson, which I appreciate. And he handed me the shoes, and then he said these words I've never forgotten. He said, Steve, never underestimate the generosity of God. Thou art coming to a king with the large petitions bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. God's goodness is communicated to us. He was rich, but he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich. The motivation for giving is never the law or guilt. It is always grace and goodness. The goodness of God is communicable. And then one other thing about the goodness of God and its quality is immutable. 
When we say immutable, it means it doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. God's goodness is a quality that never changes. God is eternally good. He cannot be anything but good all the time. The goodness of God is a quality that can never run out. It is inexhaustible. There is no limitation to the goodness of God. So whatever your situation is, your circumstance, it is always a place in that point to recognize and to see and to comprehend the goodness of God. Fact is, you don't really grow spiritually much until you realize that in bad times, God hasn't changed. Have you ever flown much? You ever flown through clouds that are bumpy and thunder and lightning? But when you get above the clouds, what's always going on? The sun is always shining. Always shining. And God's goodness is always there in the midst of the clouds of life. And that leads me to my last point this morning. And that is the Bible demonstrates for us the goodness of God. And I would like to summarize it in a very simple way. And that is God's goodness is best understood, best demonstrated in the way God responds to man's badness. God's goodness is demonstrated in the way he responds to man's badness. And all we have to do is go back to the first man, Adam. And consider the first man in the Bible... And you could say it this way, how good he had it. The Bible says that he was formed and made into God's likeness. God said, let us make man in our image. And God created man in the image of God. Let me put it this way. God, what man was perfect. Have you ever wanted to be perfect? And you weren't? Well, Adam was. But let me also say that Adam was furnished with a perfect environment. Come on, folks. He lived in paradise. He lived in Eden. Every need was met in abundance. It was a model of everything that is beautiful and pleasurable. I mean, think of it. We may work all of our life to get a home that we really love living in. Well, Adam didn't have to work very hard. God put him there. It was filled with colors and fragrances and tastes that God gave in his beautiful, we call it paradise. His world was beautiful. His work was beautiful. His wife was beautiful. And Adam was so created. He was, you could say it this way, he was so fitted in his creation. He was fitted in such a way that he could live with God in complete peace and joy. Because when he was created, he was originally righteous. By the way, nobody in this room was created that way. You are actually the opposite. You are created sinful. Thank you, Adam. So that we have to come to a place to understand what it means to live in the grace and the goodness of God. But Adam had it all. Submission to God's commands were his delight. He reveled in God's presence. 
he passionately desired every moment to be with the Lord. He was not sinful. He was sinless. However, God restricted him in the garden and limited him in one specific way that he, did not ha- he could not have access to the fruit of a tree where he could eat that fruit. And the restriction was used as his downfall. Satan tempted Adam's wife, Eve, with a question. He came into the garden in the form of a serpent. He spoke to Eve. And the first thing he did is he questioned something about God. What was that? Yea, have God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's the implication? If God is so good, why is he restricting you? God must not be good. And I want to say it again. That is one of the great fundamental struggles in our life with God. Is he good? And that deceitful suggestion led to the world's downfall. Adam and Eve willfully turned against God's goodness and they chose to sin and they received its consequences. Now I want you to think about how bad that was. We make light of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's because we don't think it through very deeply. We often, for example, we often question God's goodness when we see so much evil. But Adam questioned God's goodness when he had never seen evil at all. All he could see was the goodness of God. He never saw the bad to question the good. How bad was Adam when he turned away from God's goodness? And what did God do? May I ask you, if you were that good to someone and you did all this for them and they turned away from you, how would you respond? But it is right here in the light, in the light of man's badness that we see God's goodness. God's goodness shines so much more brightly against the backdrop of man's badness. For it is here in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, in verse 15, that we have the beginning of the good news. And what is that? Genesis 3 and verse 15. God said, I will put enmity between thee, that is the serpent, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's talking about the coming child coming through Eve that would break the power of evil and Satan. And this is what we call the proto-evangelum. The the first gospel sermon, the first message, the first picture, the first understanding that there would come into the world a man who would undo what Adam did, who would reverse the curse, who would redeem man from his sinful ways to deliver us from our badness. And the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of it. All 39 books from Genesis all the way to Malachi is a finger pointing forward with persistent and constant pictures and promises and prophecies 
about this one that would come, where he would be born, who would he be, what would he be like, what kind of power would he be, what lineage would he come from. And we know that when we come and we read the New Testament, that when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born, the Bible tells us that the angels in the city of Bethlehem announced the birth of Jesus Christ to humble shepherds. And they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. God demonstrates his goodness in the light of our badness. That's called grace, giving us what we don't deserve favoring us without anything on our part, but on his part. And God's grace was the sending of his son into the world, Jesus Christ, who would die on a cross, be crucified, pay for our sins in full, that we could receive forgiveness of sin, redemption, and a relationship with God that was lost in the garden, but was restored on the cross. And God shows his goodness to us. And why does he do that? Paul tells us in Romans 2, do we despise the riches of his goodness and patience, forbearance, and long-suffering? And here's what he says, not knowing this, ignorant of this, that the goodness of God is to lead you to repentance. The reason God is so good is to break your heart. That when you have turned your back on him, he has not turned his back on you. And to bring you to a point to show you that God is so good in so many ways that you need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to repent. And you need to believe. You can use all the philosophical arguments in the world against the existence of God. But what are you going to do with Jesus, who was the Son of God, crucified on a cross, and he rose from the dead? And in him, he offers to you eternal life, not as a work that you achieve, but as a gift that you receive. God is good. Would you bow your head with me, please, as we pray? pastor is going to come in just a moment to conclude the service. But I want to ask you, have you received God's goodness? Have you accepted the grace that is in Jesus? Have you repented and turned to the Lord with a broken heart? If not, even in your pew today, sitting there, you could open your heart and say, Lord, I receive you. I receive your gift of eternal life. And then let me say to all of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, life is a journey. It's a long journey. And throughout this long journey, we go through many trials, temptations, and snares. And many times we get angry, we blame God, or we question his goodness. And God constantly, persistently, and lovingly comes back. And says, I'm good. And you need to trust me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Lord, we thank you for your goodness.
Thank you for your unchanging, immutable, and perfect nature. Bless our dear fellow saints here with an overwhelming sense of your goodness and with an overwhelming burden to spread that goodness to those who are without Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.